Hello, and welcome to the Salisbury Pediatric Associates newsletter. I am your host, Dr. M, and this is the audio cast for volume 12, letter 11. This happens to correspond with coronavirus update number 56. The free thoughts. Mental health is the primary route to health or disease. Nutritional health is the second most important of the issues at hand today. Both have been undermined by the pandemic school and governmental policies of the past few years. We have a lot of work to do to reverse these trends. Okay, so coronavirus update 56. As this Omicron wave comes back to earth, I'm going to shift gears this week as I did two weeks ago and spend a little more time looking at secondary problems of the pandemic and now endemic state of disease for SARS-2 COVID-19. This week in specific, we're gonna take a closer look at kids and mental health. Overall though, there's still no change. All vaccines are no longer working well to prevent transmission of SARS-2 variant Omicron BA.1 and now the newly emerging BA.2. The good news remains that the vaccines absolutely prevent bad outcomes, which should be the message to all. Please get vaccinated if you have no prior COVID immunity and or have natural disease, but also have major risk factors. Omicron BA.1 is 91% less risky than Delta. North Carolina has greatly reduced COVID activity like the rest of the country. This is great news. The seven-day moving average of cases for the U.S. in recent weeks has plummeted from the highs of greater than 800,000 to less than 70,000 per week, owing to Omicron's incredible activity and burn rate. Quick up, quick down. If you have had two doses of an mRNA vaccine or had previous natural infection, you have a very, very, very small risk of significant hospitalization, therefore death from Delta or Omicron variant, based on statistics overall. However, you are likely to get some illness from Omicron now as it has escaped the two-dose series and even booster series for protection. If my risk of death is 0.000033 once vaccinated with a two-dose series or survive natural infection coupled to the fact that the vaccines no longer effectively prevent against transmission, what are we talking about then? What is the big deal now? Are we not at a really good place in this pandemic? These are really interesting questions to ponder. Latest numbers can be found in the newsletter at Google link or CDC link. As it stands today, the United States has 79 million cases and almost 947,000 deaths. The case numbers probably underestimate true case volume by at least three to four X as home kit positives are not being reported. Okay, so as with the first newsletter two years ago, Keep solace in the fact that you still have a 99 plus percent chance of surviving this pandemic, endemic, and future state, regardless of vaccination. Now, however, mathematically, you have a 99.9998% chance of survival if you've been vaccinated and the vaccine safety, the mRNA vaccines continues to be excellent. If you haven't had a chance to catch up with the podcast, Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast is live on Apple iPodcasts or Amazon Music or on Audible. The one that I would tell you to go back and listen to if you never had a chance to is go back and listen to Dr. Randy Jurdle, episode number three. It is an awesome discussion where he is a groundbreaking researcher who figured out the world of epigenetics, i.e. how our genes are being manipulated by lifestyle choices in the environment and how that then plays out to how we live in the world we exist in, how we have disease, prevent disease, all of the above. It's worth your time. There is a link 
in the newsletter as well. All right, this week we're going to look a little bit more before we start talking about mental health at Omicron sibling or cousin or whatever you want to call it, BA.2. Remember, Omicron is BA.1. Its lineage came off well before Delta and Alpha and appears to be in its own sort of genetic line, but BA.2 happens to come right in the same area. So it appears to be very, very similar to Omicron and has roughly 50 amino acid changes. It is more infectious by 10 to 30 percent by most recent data, depending on which study you look at. No data has been shown that I have seen that it's more deadly to date in humans, although a preprint article from a Japanese research group noted that in an animal model, the disease is worse than BA.1. Yamasoba et al. 2022 is the link that if you want to look at the actual article itself. They noted more cellular fusion, increasing infectivity, and also more lung cell infection, increasing morbidity. The immune protection from BA.1 against BA.2 is reduced by about 6x. This does not mean that humans respond the same way as the animal model results have shown. This bears watching. So far, I have seen no data that animals or humans are interchangeable at this point, and we have no data that humans are responding in the same way as the animal model results. In the United States, BA.2 numbers remain somewhere roughly less than 10% of the total cases, but it is rising, likely due to the quality immunity achieved following the massive Omicron BA.1 surge over the past eight weeks. Our T and B cell immunity from BA.1 should serve to protect most of us from any issues with BA.2. However, these are guesses. Time will tell. But so far, so good. As with the last COVID update, the Omicron variant found me personally, finally, in a consciously unboosted state. My residual Omicron side effects over the past three weeks since I was infected have been mild exercise-induced fatigue and a very mild irritated cough when the weather is cold or I'm out exercising. Nothing else hit me this go-round, which is significantly better than the first time around in March of 2020. I think that this reality should play out for most people in the same way as I have gone through it, with if you've been vaccinated and or had natural disease and survived without any major problems, the second go-round should be roughly similar. But again, each person will see how they respond. All right, let's move on to the quick hits. So this time we're going to focus in the beginning on children's mental health. You know, we've noticed that children's mental health has suffered significantly during this pandemic due to many different upstream negative changes, including isolation, increased exposure to home stressors, poor nutritional access, anxiety due to disease fears, reduced exercise due to infection fears, and more stuff. So number one, from the CDC this year, let's look at some of the emergency department data as a proxy for COVID-related changes in children's health. The CDC examined changes in U.S. emergency department visit trends to assess the continued impact of the pandemic on visits among children and adolescents aged 0 to 17 years. These are pediatric ED visits. Compared to 2019, pediatric ED visits declined by 51% during 2020, 22% in 2021, and 23% in January of 2022. I'm going to reproduce specifically the CDC data here with my take on it afterwards. So what I'm reading right now is going to be straight from the CDC website. So despite the fact that the ER visits were down overall, ER visits were up for problematic things related to mental health. Among children aged 5 to 11 years of age, the number and proportion of cannabis-involved visits increased during 2020 and 2021 compared with 2019. 
with an increase of four visits per week during 2020 and an increase of nine visits per week during 2021. This is likely a reflection, a reflection of increased cannabis use nationwide coupled to lax parenting during the isolating pandemic. The number and proportion of visits for psychological concerns also increased during 2021 and January of 2022 compared with 2019, with an increase of 20 visits per week during 2021 and 35 visits per week during January of 2022. This is a direct reflection of the heightened stress-induced mood changes in children during the prolonged pandemic. These numbers also reflected are also reflected in our clinic as mental health visits have jumped significantly over the past two years. During 2021, the number and proportion of visits for firearm injuries, self-harm, and drug poisoning were higher compared with 2019, with an increase of two visits per week for firearm injuries, six visits per week for self-harm, and seven visits per week for for drug poisoning. Self-harm is the disturbing stat here, as it is another marker of severe mental stress changes in young children. Among adolescents aged 12 to 17 years, During 2020 and 2021, and January of 2022, the number and proportion of visits for injuries for physical activities, example walking, swimming, and running, decreased compared with 2019, with decreases of 1,669 visits per week during 2020, 966 visits per week during 2021, and 757 visits per week during January of 2022. Conversely, the number and proportion of visits for self-harm increased in all three areas and over those three years with increases of 30 visits per week during 2020, 210 visits per week during 2021, and 207 visits per week during January of 2022. This data set is is disturbing in that teens are not active and are more stressed in their sedentary home-based environments. When we see less physical activity overall in this age group, we will see significant negative downstream effects on glucose metabolism, gut health, and mood. Movement is also critical for healthy sleep at this age. This age group needs to be active to succeed on many fronts. Similarly, the number and proportion of visits for drug poisonings and eating disorders increased during all three years compared with 2019, with increases of 12 visits per week for drug poisonings during 2020, 171 visits per week during 2021, and 178 visits per week during January of 2022. Increases of nine visits per week for eating disorders during 2020, 41 visits per week during 2021, and 38 visits per week during January of 2022. The number and proportion of visits for firearm injuries increased by 22 visits in 2020, 20 visits per week in January of 2022 compared to 2019. The number and proportion of visits for psychosocial concerns and for symptoms of mental health conditions and substance use increased during 2021 and January of 2022 with increases of 78 visits per week in 2021 and 62 visits per week during January of 2022 for psychosocial concerns an increase of 113 visits per week during 2021 and 197 per week in January of 2022 for symptoms of mental health conditions and substance abuse. Weekly ED visits among adolescent females aged 12 to 17 years increased for eating and tick disorders during 2020 and depression, eating, tick, and obsessive-compulsive disorders during 2021. The proportion of ED visits with eating disorders doubled among adolescent females. Those for tick disorders approximately tripled during the pandemic. So the take home from overall, you know, when you look at this complete data set, paints a picture 
that we knew was on the horizon based on school closures, lockdowns, and other pandemic mitigation measures that had minimal to no effect on pandemic control, but a profoundly negative effect on many children and their teens. It was a lose-lose and still is. You know, the pandemic mitigation measures were a clear attempt by the CDC and uh, the health department of the federal government to try and mitigate the ability of the virus to spread and cause significant disease and death. The problem with the entire thought process from the beginning was presumption that a pandemic is controllable through these routes. As you know, we've seen throughout this pandemic, the possibility of complete lockdown working didn't pan out. You look at Europe and different countries around the world, the lockdown measures helped in certain areas for a short period of time. But as soon as you released the lockdown measures, you had disease spread again. And then Omicron came with a much more infectious uh, situation. And every single lockdown measure that happened in the past was at that point moot and useless. So for me, I think it's a very sad state of affairs that we went through such a stressful time for all these young children. And now we're reaping the whirlwind of a decision that panned out to have little benefit, which many people said was going to happen, but the powers that be didn't listen. Again, it's easy to be Monday morning quarterback right now knowing the data, uh, but it is what it is. Number two, as the volume of mental health issues rise in the nation, schools will be ground zero for the access points to help struggling children. As many home situations are less than ideal, adding to children's stressors, it will take a village to quell the damage and reverse course. Psychologists and teachers will be tasked with identifying the children at risk and providing intervention services as needed. These will be tricky times moving forward, but our collective vigilance will be profoundly useful for at-risk children. Number three, the COVID-19 pandemic has introduced new challenges for governments and individuals. Unprecedented efforts at reducing virus transmission launched a novel arena of human face recognition in which faces are partially occluded with masks. Previous studies have shown that masks decrease accuracy of face identity and emotion recognition. The current study focuses on the impact of masks on the speed of processing of these and other important social dimensions. Here we provide a systematic assessment of the impact of COVID-19 masks on facial identity, emotion, gender, and age. Four experiments of 116 people were conducted in which participants categorized faces on a predefined dimension, example, emotion. Both speed and accuracy were measured. The results revealed that masks hindered the perception of virtually all tested facial dimensions, i.e. emotion, gender, age, and identity, interfering with normal speed and accuracy of categorization. We also found that the unwarranted effects of masks were not due to holistic processes because the face inversion effect was generally not larger with unmasked compared to with masked faces. Moreover, we found that the impact of masks is not automatic and that under some contexts, observers can control at least part of their detrimental effects, end quote. Fitousi, F-I-T-O-U-S-I et al. 2021. So that study, you know, is trying to look at are there problems with mask wearing over a prolonged period of time. For children at young ages, these mask-related processing issues may compound over time delaying development. How this plays out over time is still to be written. Only time will answer everything we want to look at when it comes to ability to catch up to normal once the masks stay away. 
Humans are resilient. However, delays in development are delays. Thus reaching, thus reaching maximal potential in any sphere may not occur now for some of these children. Again, time will answer these questions. Number four, another great fear that I have had related to children's mental health at this time stems from the year plus of missed education and support for tens of thousands of North Carolina's inner city underprivileged children due to Zoom nightmares of frankly not working or not having the ability to Zoom, or just lost to the system, which lots of children in Charlotte, somewhere upwards of 10,000 kids, were lost to the system for over a year. These children will be missing at least a year, maybe more, critical foundational material from which to build upon for the future of their education. So, you know, in looking, McKinsey Corporation often writes very high-quality studies related to effects of social, economic problems, right? And so in July of 2021, they did an analysis of the fallout of the pandemic. And I quote here, our analysis shows that the impact of the pandemic on K through 12 student learning was significant, leaving students on average five months behind in mathematics and four months behind in reading by the end of the school year. The pandemic widened pre-existing opportunity and achievement gaps, hitting historically disadvantaged students the hardest. In math, students in majority black schools ended the year with a six-month of unfinished learning. Students in low-income schools with seven months. High schoolers have become more likely to drop out of school and high school seniors, especially those from low-income families, are less likely to go on to post-secondary education. And the crisis had an impact on not just academics, but also the broader health and well-being of students, with more than 35% of parents very or extremely concerned about their child's mental health. The fallout from the pandemic threatens to depress this generation's prospects and constrict their opportunities far into adulthood. The ripple effects may undermine their chances of attending college and ultimately finding a fulfilling job that enables them to support a family. Our analysis suggests that unless steps are taken to address unfinished learning, today's students may earn $49,000 to $61,000 less over their lifetime owing to the impact of the pandemic on their schooling. The impact of the U.S. economy could be somewhere to the range of $128 to $188 billion every year as this cohort enters the workforce. To assess student learning through the pandemic, we analyzed Curriculum Associates' iReady in-school assessments results of more than 1.6 million elementary school students across more than 40 states. We compared students performing in the spring of 2021 with a performance of similar students prior to the pandemic. Students testing in 2021 were about 10 points behind in math and 9 points behind in reading, compared with matched students in previous years. This comes again from McKinsey Company Report 721, which can be found in the newsletter if you want the link. When you look at the actual report, you'll see that there's graphs that are very illustrative of the risk, be of the risk moving forward. These are daunting stats for us to overcome. This has to be ground zero for state and federal government's action list post-pandemic. We need to Get a hold of this and fix the problem. Number five, a second comprehensive look at the learning group gap from McKinsey and company was released in December of 2021. And I quote, our analysis finds that students remain behind in both math and reading. What's more, gains made since the spring are uneven. While some students are making up lost ground, others are stagnating. For example, students in majority black schools remain five months behind their historical levels in both mathematics and reading, while students in majority white schools are now just two months behind their historical levels, widening pre-pandemic achievement gaps. This means that in math, students in majority black schools are now 12 months behind their peers in majority white schools, having started the pandemic nine months behind. 
Similarly, concerns about student mental health have lessened somewhat since the spring, but they remain higher than before the pandemic. Furthermore, we aren't out of the woods yet. Disruptions to learning are not over. The student attendance rates lag significantly behind pre-pandemic levels, while actual closures of whole schools or districts have affected just 9% of students. Quarantines and other disruptions have affected 17% of in-person students. On top of school closures, absenteeism rates have risen with 2.7 times as many students on a path to be chronically absent from school this year, compared with before the pandemic. While absenteeism rates for high-income students are leveling off, rates for low-income students have continued to worsen since the spring, despite the return to in-person school. If historical correlations between chronic absenteeism and high school graduation hold, this could translate into an additional 1.7 million to 3.3 million 8th to 12th graders dropping out of school because of the pandemic. Coming from, again, McKinsey and Company report, December of 2021. So again, the entire report is worth your time. Focus your attention on making sure that your child is closing the gaps that are arose during the pandemic, if you think there are any. It is never good to see racial and socioeconomic gaps widen as they will play out over time as lost wages, worsened health, and mental stress. We must work tirelessly as pediatricians, teachers, governmental officials to close these gaps for all children. I've said this before, but I'm going to repeat it again. As a rich nation, no child should ever go hungry, uneducated, or wanting for the basics of existence. Stop spending money on any service over a child's health, especially foreign aid, military subsidized crops, lifetime health care for Congress. I mean, there are so many things that money should be drawn away from if it means a child could have poor education, hunger, or anything related to not having the best opportunity in this life. How do these needs trump the health of our future children? I will never understand the politics of a child's health. We should have everything given to our kids. My two cents. Number six, famotidine, a heartburn drug, is helpful for COVID-infected patients according to a new study in gut. Quote, rate of symptom resolution was improved for patients taking famotidine. Estimated 50% reduction of overall symptoms from baseline scores were achieved at 8.2 days for famotidine, 11.4 days for placebo treated patients. Differences were independent of patient sex, race, or ethnicity. Five self-limiting adverse events occurred. Two in the famotidine group, three in the placebo group. On day seven, fewer patients on famotidine had detectable interferon-alpha plasma levels. Plasma immunoglobulin type G levels to SARS-CoV-2 nucleocapsid core protein were similar between both arms. This comes to us from Brendan et al., 2022. This paper is a good analysis. It's in the journal Gut. You get the link on the newsletter. We have long known that cimetidine, another an acid drug for heartburn or GI distress is an immune modulator. Thus, finding out that famotidine is useful is expected and welcome. Consider adding this drug to your cabinet for future COVID-19 infections if you have risk for a negative COVID outcome. Number seven, a very good article on long COVID. I know we did that two weeks ago, but this is a newer article I just found with some really cool pictures in it in Time Magazine. Um, there's a lot of microscopic pictures discussing you know, what's happening inside the body. The link is in the, in the newsletter. Number eight, immunity post-natural infection lasts considerably longer than post-two-dose mRNA vaccination. Antibody-related immunity lasts roughly six months post-vaccine only. Natural infection, excuse me, natural infection plus a vaccine dose lasted well north of a year, 
This comes from Hall et al. 2022. Again, this is only antibody related. T cell activity lasts much longer and with better mutational specificity. The bottom line remains that in multiple studies now, natural infection once vaccinated or the other way around vastly trumps vaccine alone. Again, it is highly unlikely that repeated boosters make any sense for the vast majority of us. Only the high-risk groups appear to need boosters three, four, and on and on. Number nine, quote, the molecular mechanisms governing orderly shutdown and retraction of CD4-positive T-helper-1 cells, responses, remain poorly understood. Here we show that complement triggers contraction of Th1 responses by inducing intrinsic expression of the vitamin D receptor and the vitamin D activating enzyme CYP27B1, permitting T cells to both activate and respond to vitamin D. Vitamin D then initiated the transition from pro-inflammatory interferon gamma positive Th1 cells to suppressive interleukin-10 positive C cells. This process was primed by dynamic changes in the epigenetic landscape of CD4-positive T cells, generating super-enhancers and recruiting several transcriptional factors, notably C-JUN, J-U-N, and STAT-3 and BAC-2, which, together with vitamin D receptor, shaped the transcriptional response to vitamin D. Accordingly, vitamin D did not induce interleukin-10 expression in cells with dysfunctional BAC-2 or STAT-3. Bronchialveolar lavage fluid, CD4-positive T cells of patients with COVID-19 were Th1 skewed and showed D-repression of genes downregulated by vitamin D for either lack of substrate, vitamin D deficiency, or, and, abnormal regulation of this system, end quote. This comes for us from Chaus et al., 2021, C-H-A-U-S. So when I think of this study, this is complex, but very important. Vitamin D remains critical nutrient for immune solvency. In this case, vitamin D helps to downregulate the Th1 killer activity post-COVID that is driving excessive inflammation and damage. Genetic mutations and or vitamin D insufficiency will drive this excessive Th1 activity and inflammation leading to worse outcomes. So for me, the take-home point is make sure your vitamin D is solvent, i.e. by a sun exposure or taking vitamin D supplementation. For more on vitamin D, there's a link to a newsletter article that I wrote a few years ago that goes much deeper. Number 10, quote, the SARS-CoV-2 Omicron variant has multiple spike protein mutations that contribute to escape from the neutralizing antibody responses and reduce vaccine protection from infection. The extent to which other components of the adaptive response, such as T-cells, may still target Omicron and contribute to protection from severe outcomes is unknown. We assess the ability of T-cells to react with Omicron spike in participants who were vaccinated with AD26, CoV-2-S, or BNT162B2, and in unvaccinated covalescent COVID-19 patients, roughly 70 of them. We found that 80% of the CD4 and CD8 T-cells response to the spike was maintained across the study group. Moreover, the magnitude of the Omicron cross-reactive T-cells was similar to that of beta and delta variants, despite Omicron harboring considerably more mutations. Additionally, in Omicron-infected hospitalized patients, there were comparable T-cell responses to ancestral spike, nucleocapsid, and membrane proteins to those found in hospitalized patients of the previous waves dominated by the ancestral beta and delta variants. <laughs> These results demonstrate that despite Omicron's extensive mutations and reduced susceptibility to neutralizing antibodies, the majority of the T-cell response induced by vaccination and or natural infection cross-recognizes the variant. Well-preserved T-cell immunity to Omicron is likely to contribute to protection from severe COVID-19. 
supporting early clinical observations from South Korea, end quote. This comes from Keaton et al., K-E-E-T-O-N et al., 2022. So for me, this is more excellent data giving us true insight into protection long-term against Omicron BA.1 and almost assuredly BA.2. The T cells are prepped and ready to attack, to attack, control, and suppress Omicron, preventing severe death and disease. Frankly, little else matters in this pandemic. As stated last COVID update, natural infection to Omicron, which most of us have now, is likely to provide durable protection against future variants for a long time. Antibody levels are likely meaningless moving forward. If they are high, great. If not, no problem. T cells are here to stay and protect. 11. Heart disease risk increases after COVID disease. In a massive VA study, Veterans Administration Department, Dr. Xi, spelled X-I-E and colleagues, noted that veterans who had recovered from SARS-CoV-2 had dramatic increase in cardiovascular problems during the year post-infection. Recovered COVID-19 patients were over 50% more likely to have a cerebrovascular accident or stroke. Heart failure increased by 70%. Being hospitalized with COVID-19 added another layer to the overall risk of many cardiovascular complications. The other noted complications included myocarditis, arrhythmia, thromboembolism, pulmonary embolism, myocardial infarction, heart attack, and more. So that comes to us from Xi et al., 2022, XIE. It is well known that early on in the pandemic that COVID was affecting the blood vessels and thrombotic pathways for clotting based on research out of the Oak Ridge Labs in Tennessee. Thus, these findings are in line with expected outcomes. It remains critical from now on that all individuals that have genetic risk factors for these diseases get vaccinated and maintain an anti-inflammatory lifestyle. This disease is not going away, according to current realities. Therefore, self-care is the only best option. If COVID-19 eventually becomes a common cold, then great. If not, then prepare for your eventual infection or reinfection or re-reinfection. 12. North Carolina's data continues to show that IC use and ventilator use remains low. 13. Quote, SARS-CoV-2, Omicron, is highly transmissible and has substantial resistance to antibody neutralization following immunization with ancestral spike-matched vaccines. It is unclear whether boosting with Omicron-specific vaccines would enhance immunity and protection. In this study, non-human primates that received mRNA-1273 at week 0 and 4 were boosted at week 41 with the same vaccine, or mRNA-Omicron. Neutralizing antibody titers against D614G were 4,760 and 270 reciprocal ID50 at week 6, the peak and week 41 pre-boost, respectively, and 320 and 110 for Omicron. Two weeks after boost, titers against D614G and Omicron increased 5,360 and 2,980, respectively, for mRNA-1273 and 2670-1930 for Omicron mRNA. Following either boost, 70-80% of the spike-specific B cells were cross-reactive against both WA1 and Omicron. Significant equivalent control of virus replication in lower airways was observed following either boost. Therefore, an Omicron boost may not provide greater immunity or protection compared to a boost from the current mRNA-1273 vaccine. Gagne et al. 2022, spelled G-A-G-N-E. 
this data set for me is frankly very surprising. I would have predicted the opposite. I would have said, you know, giving the Omicron booster with a specific RNA makeup would provide a significant layer of protection going to, down the road and appears not. Such is the world of science. Hold your beliefs loosely. What this data set tells me in the context of everything that we have discussed to date so far is this. One, boosting with mRNA vaccine should be absolutely encouraged for all at-risk and vulnerable persons. Two, the rest of us should choose based on a personal fear and lifestyle to boost or get natural disease. You know my choice so far. Unless this data set is different when looked at in humans, a Homicron-specific vaccine has just lost steam for me. Four, the timing of boosting for at-risk individuals is likely to be biannual for a significant level of protection. However, this has not been settled to my knowledge. This is my scientific hypothesis. We're going to wait and see what the studies show. Section two. Should you be forced to vaccinate or boost if you had natural disease to SARS-CoV-2? The answer in my mind has been no for quite some time, as it is well known that natural infection provides the best immunity over time, assuming that you survive and have no risk factors making natural infection a risk. In an excellent opinion piece in the Lancet Rheumatology Journal, Dr. McGonigal lays out a concise reason why. Quote, First, it is well established that for single-stranded RNA viruses such as influenza, natural immunity after recovery from infection provides better protection than vaccination, which needs to be undertaken annually because of waning vaccine immunity. The same has been shown for SARS-CoV-2. In one study, individuals exposed to natural infection were 10 times less likely to be reinfected compared with vaccinated individuals without natural infection. Individuals exposed to natural infection were also less likely to be admitted to the hospital with COVID-19. Second, before the COVID-19 pandemic, it was well-established principle that although systemic vaccination against viral respiratory tract pathogens protects vaccines against serious infection, these individuals can still transmit virus to non-vaccinated individuals because of a lack of mucosal immunity. Therefore, individuals with immunity resulting from natural infection are probably less likely to transmit the infection to vulnerable patients who should themselves be vaccinated, compared with those who are vaccinated but not naturally immune. Long-term immunity in the upper airway cannot be directly measured, and serum antibody levels are not a surrogate for mucosal immunity. Third, numerous studies have shown that vaccination individuals with previous natural SARS-CoV-2 infection induce so-called superimmunity or hybrid immunity, i.e., higher antibody and T-cell responses compared with vaccination alone. This concept is often evoked in favor of vaccination, but the superimmune state has no proven long-term clinical correlates. An increasing number of studies show marginal, if any, additional benefits of vaccination individuals with natural immunity. Attributing higher serum antibody responses in vaccinated individuals to superiority over natural infections is erroneous, as considerable time might have elapsed since the natural infection with the expected waning of antibody levels. Additionally, natural infection with induction of strong interferon-dependent immunity in the upper airways could lead to interferon-related influenza-like symptoms. But with the innate cytokine response preventing such breach of mucosal barrier for clinical significant antibody generation, intramuscular vaccination will readily generate an antibody response, which is measurable as serum antibodies, albeit transiently. This phenomenon cannot be used to claim that vaccines are better than general infection. Natural infection. In some countries, including Germany, the voices of immunologists around the equivalence of natural immunity to vaccination are at least partly heard. 
since healthcare workers who have recovered from natural SARS-CoV-2 infection are exempt from mandated vaccines for 90 days. However, based on the history of viral pneumonia and natural immunity, the scientific basis of this time frame is unclear. Arguably, it should be indefinite. There's an ongoing shortage of healthcare workers in England, which a vaccine mandate would probably exacerbate. Indeed, this seems to be the primary factor in the UK government's reconsideration of this policy. A strong component of averting a further crisis in healthcare personnel should include making politicians aware of the power of natural immunity in the individuals who have recovered from COVID-19, end quote. For me, this is well said. We have to nuance vaccination need moving forward based on personal risk and prior infection history. It makes little sense to me, natural infected folks who have survived and have no major issues need to be vaccinated. They have good immunity. They've survived. Not sure why knowing that the vaccine is not preventing the spread of the virus and the virus as we just saw in january spread like wildfire what's the benefit can't see one not sure why we'll wait to see if somebody comes up with a better answer as always if you haven't read you're welcome to read the section three with covid pathophysiology it's long detailed but interesting okay that's a wrap i hope you enjoyed volume 12 Letter number 11, which corresponds with update number 56 from the Salisbury Pediatric Newsletter in the audio cast form. Again, I'm your host, Dr. M. I hope you had a lovely day today and this information is useful and provides you with some level of comfort about what's coming. As always, hug those kids. Now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this newsletter audio cast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. This newsletter does not constitute the development of a provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.